0: The scripture reading for this morning comes from uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, um, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. I think it's on page 1,801 of the Bibles in the pews. It is, page 1,801, 1801. 1801. just noticed that the offering today is not for ministry shares. It's for Back to God Ministries International, which is also exciting, because that's one of the things that our ministry shares goes to support. But Pastor Carl and I thought that it would be a good idea to to do something about ministry shares during our series on stewardship, so that's where that came from. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. Let's Come before God in prayer as we approach His Word. O oh Lord, our God and our King, we thank You and we praise You for the many gifts that You give us. As we approach Your Word now, we thank You especially for the gift of Your Holy Word in our own language that we can read and hear and understand. Lord, we thank You for the things that It teaches us about Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the things that it teaches us about how he sent his Holy Spirit to fill us and to transform us more and more into his likeness. Into a likeness that is giving and generous, self-sacrificial, into a personality that does not look after his own needs primarily, but the needs of others. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word today, that you would send your Holy Spirit to write it on our hearts and in our minds so that we may be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Second Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed. But that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, today we continue with our fifth sermon in our series on stewardship. We started off the series by talking about how our world belongs to God and how greed challenges that fact in our hearts. We have talked about the needs of people around the world through hunger and poverty and persecution and how God has a special place for such people in his heart. Throughout this series, we have been unpacking the very basic claim. Of God's ownership over our possessions, that everything that we have belongs to God. And today we're going to look at how we do that in worship through the offering. Now before we dive into, tec- into the text, I want to take a moment, maybe you're visiting with us today and you're thinking to yourself, oh great, another church talking about money. Maybe it's your first time in church in a while and you're just sick of churches always asking for money. And maybe you've been coming to our church for a little while, for the past couple weeks, and you, you're thinking to yourself, man, all this church talks about is money. And we have been doing a series on stewardship for five weeks, and so that could be an easy thing to think. But I want to tell you right now please do not feel obligated to give today. Your presence here with us, the fact that you're here worshiping with us, is the greatest gift that you could give us, and we are so glad that you're here. We hope that you feel comfortable. We hope you'll join us for coffee after the service in the gym, which is free. (laughs) And we hope that you find a home here, a place where you can grow in faith and in love and grow to know the living God who pours out his grace freely. Welcome to you. The reason we talk about money in church is not to guilt trip people or to do fundraising. The reason we talk about money in church is because we are about the business of living as God's holy people. As God's children, transformed by His grace, being conformed to the image of His Son, we talk about money because the Bible talks about money, and it talks about it a lot. If you've been coming here for the past five weeks, you, you see that very clearly. The Bible talks about money a lot. <clears throat> we talk about money in church because how we use our money is not just a matter of being responsible or being charitable. How we use our money is an important part of our spiritual life, an important part of our relationship with God, an important part of being transformed by God's Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to be talking about again today. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the offering as a part of worship and as a part of our lives. And to explore that, we're going to look at this passage in God's Word from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. <clears throat> In this passage from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, Paul encourages the Corinthians to continue to give so that he can bring the money that they've collected to Jerusalem to help the church there, which was living under intense persecution. And it's interesting that Paul writes this because the Corinthian Christians were the ones who sort of came up with the idea of having the offering as a part of worship You see, when Paul went out on his missionary journeys, he went to preach the gospel. He didn't go intending to do any sort of fundraising or any sort of collecting of money. Paul went to preach the gospel. But when he gets to Corinth, Paul stays with that church for a while, for for a year and a half about. And so. And and that's, that's not generally true of Paul. Paul spends, in most places where he starts churches, he spends a couple days or a couple of weeks, but in Corinth, he spends over a year. And so for the first time, Paul gets to see what faith looks like as people grow in the Spirit, what people who have been transformed by the Spirit look like in their everyday lives, how they live differently from everybody else. And the Corinthian Christians were like, well, God has given us so much, it makes sense that we should give in return. And they incorporated this giving as a part of their regular worship, as we see in 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul tells them to continue to set aside a portion of their income on the first day of the week, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And so Paul sees this act of generosity on the part of the Corinthian churches, the Corinthian Christians, And he thinks that this is a great idea. It's a natural and obvious response to the gospel. God has given so much to his people. And it makes sense that his people would want to give in return. It's a natural response. And so Paul goes all over the Mediterranean again, telling people about how the Corinthian church has incorporated the offering as a part of their worship, and people love it. People love it. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 4, that the Macedonian Christians, even though they lived in extreme poverty, pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, which seems to surprise him. This seems to surprise Paul, probably because many of the Corinthian Christians were wealthy, we saw this in, uh, in the sermon a couple of months ago about the Lord's Supper, where we saw that there was some conflict in the Corinthian church based over the way that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper because the rich Christians were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that excluded the poor. But it goes to show that there were many Christians in the Corinthian church that were wealthy. They were wealthy. And so when Paul travels through Macedonia, which is a much poorer community, a much poorer part of the world in his time, It makes sense that he's surprised that they want to contribute from their resources as well because they hardly have any resources. But what Paul realizes through his travels and through reflection is that offering our gifts is a natural response to everything that we have been blessed with in the gospel. The purpose of Christ's work is not just to forgive sins. That's an important first step, and it's a crucial one, and one that we need to be reminded of Sunday after Sunday, and that's why we incorporate the Confession and Assurance as part of the worship service every Sunday. But the purpose of Christ's work is much bigger than just forgiving our sins. The purpose of Christ's work is to transform us into the holy and righteous people of God, this is why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to live in us and to work inside of us. This is why Jesus lives a whole life here on earth and teaches his disciples how to follow him. This is why the whole history of the world unfolds in the way that it does. It's because God is working to transform us and mold us and remake us so that we can be his image bearers once again, so that we can be light and salt in the world, the people who are called by his name and blessed by his spirit. Paul realizes that the question of giving is much bigger and much more profound, a much deeper issue than just fundraising. Paul realizes that giving is an important way in which Christians worship God, giving is an important way in which Christians live out God's grace. Giving is an important way in which Christians respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes this connection explicit in verse 9 of the passage that we read today. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, for your sakes, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How beautiful this is. How simple, how wonderful. The Son of God, the King of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth, became poor so that we might become rich. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the children of men might become the children of God. Jesus forgives our sins. He makes us pure He breathes His Holy Spirit into our hearts and guides us in the way of salvation so that we are made to be children of the promise, children of the covenant. Young and old, rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, we are all made to be heirs in the inheritance of salvation. We are adopted into God's family as brothers and sisters of the Son of God Himself and given a place in His kingdom where we reign with Christ. Jesus Christ became poor so that we might become rich. And our natural response when we're shown such generosity is to be generous in return. That's what the Corinthian Christians realized, that's what Paul realized, and eventually that's what the entire Christian church around the world realized. Very quickly, the practice of offering our gifts to God became a vital part of Christian worship. There is not a single Christian tradition that I can find that does not incorporate the offering as a regular part of their worship, and that's really saying something, because there is not a whole lot that every Christian church in the world agrees on. There's not. But every Christian church around the world understands that 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 moment, that moment of offering our gifts to God, that moment of responding to the gospel of grace from the things that we have, from the things that God has given us, is a vital and important part of Christian worship. The offering is not an intermission so that the preacher can take a break. The offering is not a time for us to sit back and think about the sermon the offering is not a way for us to fundraise for our church budget or raise money for our ministries. The offering is a bridge. It's a bridge where we move from hearing the Word of God to doing the Word of God. Here at Community CRC, that's why we have the offering where we do. We start the service off by praising God for who He is because He calls us to worship Him. We confess our sins and receive God's forgiveness. Then we hear God's word and we hear the good news of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us, what God is currently doing in our lives, and what God will do in the future. And in response to that message, we express our gratitude. We start off with prayer because prayer is the primary means of gratitude. The primary way that we show gratitude to God. And then we offer up our gifts. We give in response to God's gift. We give in response to God's grace. We give in response to everything that God has done for us. For creating the world and forgiving our sins and sending His Spirit and guiding us in the way of salvation and making us His people and blessing us with a community where we can learn and grow in faith and love, forgiving us everything that we have in life. That's why we give as a part of worship. It's a natural and obvious response to everything that God has done for us. And this raises a couple of obvious questions, kind of technical questions, questions about how and how much. And these questions can be difficult to answer, but they are important questions and I know that a lot of people have them, so I'm going to do my best here. First, the question of how much. How much should we give? In the Old Testament, the answer to this question would have been obvious. The law that God gave to Moses at Sinai said very clearly that everybody was to set aside a tenth of their income to support the priests who didn't have land, and to support the poor. And I think that this is a good guide. Ten percent is a substantial number, and it definitely requires people to be intentional and thoughtful about their giving. But the New Testament doesn't uphold the rule of the tithe, at least not as a rule. We're called to give as we are able. Paul says in verse 12, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. And this is a good principle for us to follow. As Christians, we are free from the law. We are not bound to a tithe. We can feel free to give even more. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, um, what was a good amount to give. And C.S. Lewis answered, he said, I don't think there is a good rule for how much we ought to give just that it should be a little bit more than we can spare. And that's what Paul's saying here, too. In verse 12, Paul says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And he's saying that to the members of the Corinthian church who are poor, who are themselves struggling financially. Paul is saying this so that the poor Christians don't feel bad about giving, say, 50 bucks while their rich neighbor puts 1,000 bucks into the offering plate. Maybe the poor Christian feels bad about just giving 50 bucks. Maybe the poor Christian wishes that they could give 1,000 bucks. But what Paul is saying here is that the gift is acceptable according to what one has. That a poor person giving 50 bucks is just as good as a rich person giving a thousand bucks. Paul is basically saying here that it's the heart that counts. But the hands should follow the heart. The Macedonians gave out of their extreme poverty and so the wealthy Corinthians ought to be able to make sacrifices on their end too. I think that we often say it's the thought that counts as a way to cover up for the fact that we actually don't care. I had a friend who taught a class on the spiritual disciplines, on fasting, prayer, meditation, those kinds of things. And she was teaching this class and she got to the section about fasting and about how fasting fights the sin of greed in the human heart. And she told this story to her class about two students that she had had in a previous class who gave away all of their clothes except for two outfits. And this was their way of, of, this was their sort of method of fasting gave away all their clothes except for two outfits, and she thought that this was a great story about how they had overcome their their desire for wealth, their need for things, and a person in her class piped up and said, well, that's all fine and good, but we don't actually need to give up our stuff as long as we're willing to give up all of our stuff, right? And that's true. But this is precisely the danger of wealth. When we become wealthy, it's very easy for us to think that we need all of our wealth. We find more and more things to spend money on. We buy a bigger house, but what good is a bigger house without new furniture and a big TV, high-speed internet, a good cable package, another car to go in the other half of that garage, it looks pretty empty. And, of course, we have to have insurance on everything because we can't live without it. And then we hear about things like the Ebola virus and Christian children being beheaded by ISIS and the thousands of refugees displaced by Mexican drug cartels, civil war in the Congo, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we feel bad about those things. And we feel like that's mighty Christian of us, feeling bad about those things. And then we go back to our Xboxes and our cable television and our third meal of the day and our $500 phones. And we never once think to ourselves, I could give this up. I could give this up to God to care for the poor, the hungry, and the persecuted. It's a dangerous game we play. John Calvin has this beautiful analogy in his sermons on Job, where he says that our material possessions are like a boat. A poor person with few possessions is like a person in a canoe going down the stream. If they fall into sin, if they fall out of the boat and into the water, it's just a short swim before they reach the shore and God pulls them out. But a rich person with many possessions is like a person on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. John Calvin doesn't say cruise ship, I'm paraphrasing. They're in this huge boat filled with distractions, and they tell themselves that it's not dangerous. But if they fall into sin, they drown. The Bible doesn't say that wealth is evil just that it's dangerous. Having wealth becomes a sin when we are unable or unwilling to give it up. And the best way to test that, really the only way to test that, is to give it up. Scripture is full of stories about wealthy people. Zacchaeus, the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke, gives away half of his wealth. Job, who was a very wealthy man, loses everything that he has and still he is faithful to God. Even Abraham. I think that a lot of times we sort of think of Abraham as this, this like vagrant, wandering shepherd. But Abraham was like a king. And I want to show you this picture. It's a painting by uh, Peter Paul Rubens. Um, and it was painted in um, the 1600s sometime. I forget the exact date. But this painting is of Abraham and Melchizedek from Genesis 14. And it's a, it's a small scene from a story um, about Abraham defeating four kings because they captured his nephew Lot, which just goes to show you how rich Abraham really was. He had a personal army that was strong enough to go up against four kings and win. That's pretty incredible. But the the way that this story goes in Genesis 14 is that after Abraham defeats these four kings and rescues his, uh, his nephew... He doesn't even keep any of the, these kings' wealth for himself. He gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek, who's the guy in the big like, the big robe. Um, because Melchizedek is a priest of the high God, he gives a tenth of it to him. And then he gives the rest of the, the wealth that he's gained from, from this war to the kingdoms that had been conquered by these four kingdoms so that they could rebuild. And the reason I'm showing you this picture is not just to tell you the story of Abraham. The reason I want to show you this picture is because I want to tell you about a story of a guy named Fred. Fred is a wealthy man. And he was burdened by that. He was very burdened by that. He wasn't sure how to be a good Christian and be wealthy. He tried giving his wealth away, but he always made more because wealth sort of breeds wealth. But he was, but, but he, yeah, he always made more and he kept on feeling guilty about it. But he was in a museum one day and he saw this painting, this painting of Abraham. And for the first time in his life, he realized that Abraham was a wealthy man. And suddenly it clicked in his mind that you can be wealthy and still serve God. That God can use your wealth for great things if you let him. People can do great things with wealth for the sake of the gospel. And Fred is still rich. And he enjoys his wealth and he lives a comfortable but simple lifestyle. But he uses his wealth to provide low-income rental housing for people who need it, to support Christian, um, Christian mental health care, to support Christian education, and a whole host of other things. God used Fred and his wealth to do great things once Fred stopped feeling guilty and gave his wealth up to God once he started being generous. That was a very long answer, so I'll make this next one shorter. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I feel guilty about living comfortably while others suffer in poverty and persecution, and I'm not very generous, so how can I become more generous? How can I become more generous? And I think that the answer is to practice. And that's what Paul says here to the Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthians to continue to give. To continue to give. Give and give and give and give. Some people have this radical conversion experience like Fred did where all of a sudden they become generous giving people. But for most people, the Holy Spirit takes its time. And it works through practice and through routine. It takes practice. And so do what Paul tells the Corinthians. Not in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 16. Put aside a bit of your wealth every week. Make a rhythm of it in your life. Give every week. This is a great way to teach kids to be generous, too. I have a friend named Derek, and he gave me permission to use this story. He's a pastor now in, uh, in Chicago. But when Derek was very young, his parents started giving him an allowance of 50 cents a week. 50 cents a week. And they gave him this allowance in nickels. And they gave him a little piggy bank that was shaped like a church. (laughs) And so every week when Derek got his allowance, he would put a nickel into his church piggy bank every single week, week after week. Every time he got 50 cents, he put a nickel in his piggy bank. And then when it was full, he'd bring it to church, bring the piggy bank into church with him, this little church-shaped piggy bank. And when the offering plate came around, he'd pull the plug and he'd dump all the nickels into the offering plate. I'm sure the deacons loved that. (laughs) But Derek is a very generous person now. He's a very loving person. He's a person who models a Christ-like attitude and a Christ-like life. And I think that this is a great idea to do with your kids. Maybe give them more than 50 cents. This was when when I was a child, so inflation has, has changed things a little bit. But train your kids to be regular, generous givers. And then when they grow up, they will be regular, generous givers. This is the way that the Holy Spirit works in most of us. Slowly growing us, molding us, shaping us, transforming us to be generous the way that Christ is generous. Paul uses this teaching on generosity to make an important point about Christian equality. In Christ, we are all equal. We are all sons and daughters of the promise, heirs to the kingdom of God. At the present time, your plenty will supply their need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. The wealth of the Corinthians will provide for the poverty of the Jerusalem church. And one day, the wealth of the new Jerusalem will provide for the Corinthian Christians. When Christ returns, it won't matter How much money we've saved up. It won't matter how many cars we have or what cable package we've got or how fast our internet is. What will matter is the grace that God has shown us in Christ and how we have allowed the Spirit to mold us and shape us to be more like Him. We give because God has given to us. We give because God has been gracious to us. We love because God first loved us. May his name be praised. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said,